Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Before we we came on, we were talking about how everyone's hair looks good, and I was just... um, envying bill's long flowing locks over there which just will never happen oh, for me I know. My, my microphone style though <laughs> and earbuds like you guys anyway just kidding that's right that's right so um yep to today none other than um bill fleckenstein i'm sure will be no no stranger to anyone else on the podcast circuit uh co-host of things that make you go um uh hmm hmm podcast with um with grant williams and um so welcome bill thanks for coming well thanks for having me let's have some fun mike yeah you bet you want to you want to well, give us it's the, friday uh, it's another happy hour cheers to all oh. and um again this, oh this it's too early for me to drink i have to go to the gym after we're done oh. so I, I can't join you boys <laughs> oh, great. all right well i'll have to for you mm-hmm just remember that if you're seeking any kind of investment advice, you don't find it here from these four scallywags. We're going to talk about lots of stuff that we don't want to be responsible for any of it. So with that said, here we go. Exactly. So um, um, I'm super excited to have to have Bill on today um, um, for a number of reasons, but, but one of the which is that, um, of course, Bill, in your investment management days, you specialized in short selling right if, if i recall and yep. um this has i mean th- there's <laughs> rarely been a time that short sellers have caught the markets 
and, and even those who haven't um, previously participated in, in markets, um, their attention in quite the same way as as what we're seeing in the current environment. So I'm I'm keen to hear your observations and reactions to to all of the the craziness that's going on right now. And maybe well, color that with your background a little bit, because just for us to get a call. sense of how how far along back. Were you a dedicated short seller? I think okay. that might be helpful. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version and make it somewhat topical, hopefully. I started my short fund in 1996, um, and I did it because I had been running value-oriented money for about 14 years at that point, and I thought that Greenspan's policies were going to lead to problems. <clears throat> And I thought for a variety of other reasons. And so my idea was I would set up a short fund, the, you know, then things would, you know, sanity would break out and I'd, and I'd go back to the long side and it'd be easier for me to raise money because I, I was wise enough to see what was happening and then I'd be able to raise more money on the long side. That was my plan. Unfortunately, 1996 was a little bit early given what happened in 1999 and um, I, when I set my short fund up, I had to be, it was short only, but always short because if this is going to sound really funny now, but then people were afraid that if you weren't in position, you might miss it because they kept thinking about the 87 stock market crash. So I said, you know, I, I can, I can do, I thought I could do that. And up until the fall of 98, I was reasonably successful. I might have big drawdowns, but I'd always do better when things would break. Um, uh, the, my research was, was pretty good. Um, but then from the fall of 98, when we had the surprise long-term capital, irresponsible rate cut on the part of Greenspan, till early 2000, it became impossible. I had huge drawdown, and I had to change my methodology and I came up with some rules that really stood me in good stead after that. And I, I decided simplistically, if the Fed's easing, I don't really want to be short. Uh, if the market's hitting new highs, if individual stocks are hitting new highs, I don't want to be short. If stocks aren't going down on bad news, I don't want to be short. Um, if I didn't have a catalyst, I didn't want to be short. So I evolved my ta my, 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 my approach to be more tactical, I went to my investors in early 2000 and said, look, I can't be always short anymore because it's not possible. And I just got filleted in the last year. Um, and so I switched my tactics. That worked really well. Um, and then um, when in early, oh, uh, sorry, in the fall of 08, sorry, early 09, when they decided they were going to do QE, I decided that, that QE was going to make it even more difficult to be short. And I'd had sort of a disagreement with um, a very large investor of mine who wanted me to be more short at the wrong time because his other managers, he was, in a, he was a fund of funds operator, were getting blown up. The guys who were you know, supposed to be market neutral, not lose much money, were down 40. And so he called me one day near the lows in October and wanted to know how short I was. And I said I was down to like, I don't know, 38% short. And, and he said, I need you to be more short. And I says, I can't be more short. That's not the right thing to do right here. Anyway, between that and the Fed, I walked away, gave all the money back. And with hindsight, that was probably the best decision I've ever made in my entire life. I had the right idea, but it's played out in a, in a way I couldn't have guessed. So that's my, my that, that, was, that was why I did it. Um, 
I, I, I wrote a book about the Fed in 2008, or sorry, 2007. McGraw-Hill came to me and asked me if I'd write a book about Greenspan to coincide with his own congratulatory book. And I laid out, you know, the, the bubble, well, how they were responsible for the bubble and why I thought the next bubble was going to blow up. And then it shortly, it did shortly thereafter. I, I like to my think, I like to think of myself as I was a short seller trying to warn people. My friend, Mark Hodes does the same thing. He, he was in a whole different area and he operated differently than I did. So there are a lot of short sellers who have been beneficial to people. I mean, there was a lot of problem companies that I warned about and I got lots of nice letters from people saying, Hey, thank you. There is another, but like in all disciplines, there are some people that, that do it in a way that might be helpful to others. And there's some guys that play sleazy, but that happens on the long side that happens in every discipline. And so um, while short sellers are getting blamed, the problem, the, the, the people that are in trouble are not really short sellers. They have short positions to help balance out their book. I think the balance, the, the, the bulk of the long short community, which is most hedge funds, have shorts on so they can have more longs or some variation of that theme. Not everyone, of course. I'm, I'm making a blanket statement, but it's not true. And so the, those folks may be in the wrong things, maybe. And, 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 and I think that you don't quite know what it's like to deal with craziness unless you're short and you don't have any longs to, to save you. If you always have longs, you can kind of, you kind of can kid yourself. Well, Tesla can't possibly go up unless my, and if the market goes down, Tesla will have to go down. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of guys and that logic makes sense, except that those things don't ever really work. And uh, so anyway, I think, I think the, the whole short community, it's not really short sellers. They're guys that are running a long, short book. And unfortunately, some of the cigar butts, they were short, came to life for a confluence of events. And now the, the narrative has gone off in a different way. And it has to do with Robin Hood only like letting folks exit trades. And now Congress wants, this is going to be a big deal. But I mean, the, the, the nonsense that I, seen, I see spewed on TV regularly about how the short sellers have done all this is pretty hysterical. But anyway, that's enough about short selling, I think, unless you want to ask well, me more. Well, what, what, just, just some personal experiences. Did you ever find yourself in a GameStop-like position and how no. did you deal with it? No. You always because, had your position sizes. Yeah. T tell us how you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, yeah. Fair enough. That, that, that's actually a good point. So I was also short in uh, short Tokyo in 1989. I started in 88. So I got roughed up a bit first. I found a derivative instrument that traded in Singapore, a warrant that wasn't, there was no market maker on the other side and they were horribly mispriced. Uh, Jim Grant wrote an article back about it and uh, I caught that well, but I had seen what happened to big stocks in Japan. They would, they would bust them out and move them in a way, you know, big companies didn't move four, five, six, seven percent for no reason in the old days. So I learned that lesson and, um, um, so I kind of had some other rules. I just gave you a few of mine for like overall, but I never like to be short frauds, believe it or not. Um, because you know, if you can't catch a company who's honest, catching one that's crooked is really hard. Now, Mark was good at that. And then for time to time I did get involved, but I tended to stay away from him. I, I didn't like to short single digit stocks because you got to put on so much, so many shares that if it starts to go against you, it's easy to get in trouble quickly. Um, I really didn't get involved with crowded trades, crowded, you know, short interest trades. And um, I, I believed, I, I felt that I couldn't run much 
money in the aggregate um, because I wanted to be able to get flat within a couple of hours for like 80% of my book. So there were times when I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to get my stuff covered fast enough. I mean, I was wrong plenty. I was mispositioned plenty. You know, there were surprise rate cuts. 2008 was an epic period. I mean, there was one time when they decided you couldn't short financial stocks and they decided that IBM and Winnebago were financial stocks, things like that. And then that blew up the long short community and that caused other problems. Um, so I, I think at the end, uh, when I closed my short fund down, it was only like a 170 million or so. I'd always felt that I had to stay at a certain size or I couldn't get out. And, and, and so I was primarily focused on how do I do this in a way that I won't get trapped? Cause I didn't, it was bad enough being wrong. It's bad enough. Have them, you know, you're wrong on something and they're lighting you up on the stock, but you can at least get out of it. I didn't want, I, I can't even imagine what these poor guys are going through guys and gals that are, have these positions on. So I had a whole string of things that I did to not have that problem because it's easy enough to be wrong or misguide the mood of the crowd. I mean, and you know, it, to my eye, it's only gotten infinitely more, more difficult. I mean, you know, I run some money, some money still, but I, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll have like, you know, 10,000 of this or 10, and it's only from time to time. Like I'm short some stuff right now because I think that guys have to take exposure down, but instead of being something that I think is a mispriced piece of crap, even if it's a multi-billion dollar piece of crap, I'm short, short things that I think are just expensive that I don't think warrant that the people are long, like for instance, Apple. Cause it can go down cause people own it. And if you're trying to, if you've got to take your book down, you got to sell what you own and cover what you, so anyway. As a PM, you're not, you're not gonna, me. You're not, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, you're well, not going to get trapped in those crowded yeah. trades in that, in, in that paradigm. No, and, and it defies all, it defies, yeah, and it defies all logic. Look what's happened. I mean, look at this GameStop. Well, we don't, or we could talk about black, but we can talk about any of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've just gone into orbit. And how do you protect? I mean, there. I, I saw a little while ago a dealer sent me um, for next Friday. I get Game stocks. I don't know. I think it's around two fifty right now. I'm, my screen's not in front of me. But the eight hundred dollar calls for next Friday, ten thousand traded at forty seven dollars. The stocks. Let's call it three hundred. So I, I mean, I just don't even. Ugh, that's just so scary. I mean, look there. I had nights where I wasn't sure I was going to be able to cover in the morning get out of my stuff. And I told you I had it set up so I could pretty much get out. It, it can be pretty scary when you're on the wrong side of everything. <laughs> so as a former short seller, it's clear that you, part of you commiserates and you, you sympathize with the position that some of these uh, uh, PMs have found themselves in. But on the flip side to that, what do you think about the, the SEC and other regulators potentially uh, uh, banning outsider trading at this point. That, that was a good tweet I read the other day. I mean, what Robin Hood has done and, and sort of this limitation, what are your thoughts on, on some of the actions that have been taken on this? Well, first of all, one of the reasons the markets are broken and behave as they do, in addition to passive and uh, structured products and the dealer hedging and all the things you guys already know about. Um, and thank, thanks, thank the Lord for Mike Green, who explained passive to everyone. So now at least we can understand why the market acts as ridiculous as it does. Um, um, oh my God, I lost my train of thought. You, you're, regulatory. You're question, regulatory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, one of the 
so the, the Fed does, has done its thing to create muscle memory that stocks can't go down and then nothing goes wrong. So you get these animal spirits. And then the SEC hasn't done its job at all. Let me ask you this. When did they repeal Sarbanes-Oxley? Gosh, that's going back to the that's the last, last bubble in 99, right? 90, it's a trick question. They, 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 <laughs> they passed it in 2001. And it was supposed to be a, a crime if you signed a financial statement that was fraudulent. And they used to make the director sign and the CFO. I was on a couple boards at the time. I took that pretty seriously. I think they might have enforced it for all five minutes. And you were supposed to have to use gap accounting. You weren't supposed to make up all these metrics uh, like, you know, total addressable, you know, all these things. Pro formas and stuff. Yeah. yeah and, and it goes on all the time. So the and then we know what Elon Musk got away with, with funding secured and you know, telling the SEC what he really thought of them, you know. Um, so there are no authorities. There's no rules. And even before this period, go back to 90 to the to the to the um, the uh, 2008 debacle when they repealed Glass-Steagall in the late 90s, where Greenspan led the charge. They gave the Fed the supervisory role for the big brokerage and banks. Well, we saw how that worked out in 2008. And no one criticized the Fed for their lack of ability on an oversight standpoint. And no one went, I mean, Dick Fold didn't go to jail. You know, nobody went, no, virtually nobody went to jail. So there's, there, there, are, there are no rules, really. I mean, there are laws, but there are no rules. They're not enforced. So uh, I, I, I sympathize with these guys at Robin Hood. You know, they, they took on the man, Stevie Cohen and Ken Griffin. They beat them in like 24 hours. And then they said, oh, sorry, you can't do this anymore. Now, I know that Robin Hood was facing you know, regulatory financial uh, uh, issues, but I think they did, a, they did a bad job of explaining it. And the, the optics are, oh, you start to beat the man. Uh, we're going to take the game away from you. We're going to change the rules, you know. And uh, I suspect there's going to – when Ted Cruz and AOC agree on something – there's liable to be some legs to that story. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I, I don't know, but I, I think there's a starting to become in, on a serious note. I think there may start to become an, a questioning of some of the uh, ideas people have taken for granted. You know, the fed can't make any mistakes. It's got our back. You know, nobody ever criticized I mean, guys like me and some of you for all I know, but very few people criticize the fed. Um, and, and now all of a sudden, you know, maybe Janet Yellen's going to get a little egg on her face for taking all that money from Citadel and Goldman Sachs. And so the cozy nature of wall street, the government and all this at this moment in time, when there's all this, uh, chatter about equity, equality, you know, little guy income disparity, you know, there, there could be some interesting changes and, and, and changes in psychological behavior that come out of this. I mean, think what you will about Bitcoin, um, but the, the folks that are the religious zealots, I should say, that, you know, that could are constantly promoting it. One thing they get is the Fed has turned the currency into kind of confetti. Well, if that gets sprinkled other places, you can see a lot of things could 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 come out of this period that would change the narrative. So I think we have to be alert to to change in psychology that come out of this period we're in right now. I That's got off on of, a tangent. Sorry. 
No, no, actually, you're you're right in the direction that I was I was actually hoping to go, which is we've got this situation where um and and oddly the short sellers are are kind of the dissidents in the marketplace, right? Like they're the ones who are who are trying to 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 bet against the system, that are that are betting against the the um the man. And how here you have this group of investors who are using dissidents to express their disenfranchisement or they're, they're beating up the dissidents, the remaining dissidents in the market to express their disenfranchisement with a system that they feel has, has left them behind. And, and I, and I kind of feel like they're, this is a manifestation of a broader phenomenon, right? Where you've just got a, you've got a, a small but growing group of highly disenfranchised persons, not just in America, but all around the world. And that is being expressed through things like populism and storming the Capitol in Mm. the political realm, Occupy Wall Street, that sort of thing. But but now, you know, in the financial markets through these coordinated... short squeezes and gamma squeezes, et cetera, but there, and, and, and also in Bitcoin and, and crypto in general, right? And so do you, do you feel all of this is sort of a, a manifestation of a generalized phenomenon, which is sort of an anger with a, with a system that is leaving more and more people behind? Yeah. And these are all just sort of release valves for that. And, and how do you see that kind of evolving as they, you know, the authorities continue to kind of double down on this with MMT, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who's listened to me more than once is going to roll their eyes. But, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of this goes back to the Fed because what has created the massive inequality of wealth has certainly been to a large degree QE. And before that, it was the way the Fed underpriced credit all the time and interest rates. That's we had two bubbles, and now this one they've been pushing the pushing the snowball for twelve years now. As Paul Singer said on a on a podcast we just did, Grant and I, you know, the Fed got away with it. They got away with it for ten years. They shouldn't have, but they did. And uh, and I think that uh, uh, has and also the middle class. Part of the reason why Donald Trump was elected in 2016, in my opinion, was because of frustration in the middle class. You know, in some ways, there's no inflation to speak of, but depends on your status in life. And if you've been in the middle class and your jobs, your job uh, options have diminished the pay with um, high quality pay, let's say cost of living is still going up. Education. I mean, I don't believe the rate of inflation that has been printed by the CPI has been anything close to reality. I'm not saying it was, you know, four times higher. I'm just saying it wasn't what they said. And in fact, in the book that I wrote about the Fed, I had a chapter or part of a chapter on some of the the little cheats that go on in the CPI. Uh, So I think the middle class was hollowed out and frustrated. Then you also had the, um, you know, the massive wealth inequality. And ironically, you get people like Paul Krugman who hate the wealth inequality but then they they champion the very policies that create it. And I can't believe that these people are so stupid. They can't see that it's QE and all of this that precipitates it. So then you had the now then we've had we've had the economy shut down basically for almost a year. So people are frustrated because of that. And then you see these uh, uh, and then, then, you know, Bitcoin, you know, some people see the system as it is and they gravitate to, to Bitcoin. 
I don't, and, and then, and then, you know, Dave Portnoy says stonks never go down a year ago, gets out the green hammer and says, they don't go down. And guess what? He was right. And then they start doing this and, and then, and then they jerk the rug out from under them when they're winning. And I think that's a bad look. So, you know, that's going to cause other problems, but uh, I mean, so there's a whole lot of things that are festering. Um, if I was a um, millennial or younger, I would be foaming at the mouth to get the Fed under control. I mean, we're going to have to go through a painful period because you, you, you mean when, when you when you make rates zero and they're not supposed to be zero and you make them be there and you say we're going to create 2% inflation. But since we didn't create it and we made that number up, by the way, they just made it up in the last 10, 12 years. It never existed before. There's nothing, go, go, there's nothing in the Fed chart about you need 10, 2% inflation. And of course, 2% is not enough. So we're going to need to have three or four to average out for it. I mean, at some point, the bond market's going to crack. Um, that's my pet theory. Something's going to happen to take the printing price away from the Fed. And if they, and probably what will happen is the bond market will start to misbehave and they'll put on yield curve control. And then that'll put gasoline on a lit fire. And, I mean, I don't know how this is going to play out. I just know... We're in the eighth or ninth, ninth inning of this money printing era, and I don't know how these changes that are coming out because of what we just talked about are going to exactly play out. Like I wouldn't have guessed that an epic short squeeze could take the market down, but that's what's happening. Um, and, and oh, by the way, I don't think it was organized. I think what happened was, and you guys probably know better than I do about this, but when the, these guys started piling into the stuff – if you're if you're short these things, and I think a lot of sophisticated players were, then you got to start getting out of the way because you're you know I think a lot of long short people, particularly if they're kind of market neutral, they have a lot of leverage, and so you can't take much of a perturbation. You can't have a few positions go up a bunch, or you got to start taking your book down. So and then they run them they ran themselves in the the millennia the uh, the Robin Hooders got credit. But they weren't putting up the big pieces. It was all the other people and the dealers and guys front running and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, whoever thought that my whole career, I've never seen somebody in the process of blowing up like Melvin Capital was, have Steve Cohen and Ken Griffin step in, give them almost $3 billion. I thought, oh, game over for the kids. They're going to crush them. And it turns out 24 hours later, you know, the, the, the new capital appeared to have been vaporized. So- but do you really and, buy that this was grassroots and there weren't other hedge funds piling into the long side of this and just adding fuel to the fire? I mean, the the, the beginning of this movement, sure, maybe the Reddit thread really did. But to, to, to imagine that the whole movement was was completed by a bunch of retail investors and that there weren't hedge fund guys taking it taking advantage of the momentum and the the understanding of the dynamics of the, the gamma squeeze and the short squeeze and how much they could profit from that. That might well, have played a more substantial well, but, but, role. But, but, okay, well, there's two possibilities. One is that it was a sort of a spontaneous combustion of a lot of different things. And look, I'm sure some opportunistic guy said, well, I see what's going on. I'm going to, I mean, let's say you're a flow guy and you trade derivative options and stuff. You see what's happening. You jump on board with a little bit and 20 other guys did. Now, you didn't say, hey, okay, let's all go do this together at the same time. Okay, you buy those strikes, I'll buy these strikes, we'll get them all. Did some of that happen? Perhaps. But it's so big, I don't really think, I think it was one of these 
these perfect storms that it's hit. an emergent phenomenon. Right? Yeah, from, and I'm from not sure conditions I'm not, yeah, that are. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm I, I'm sure guys helped us exacerbate it, but it wasn't like I don't think like I can remember, and this this goes back to the '90s, I think. You know, guys were talking about the most shorted stocks back then, and there were guys peddling services. You know, here's the most shorted stocks. They would try to organize the squeeze. That was sort of organized. No one ever did anything about that. So I can imagine a couple of guys, might, buddies might have gotten together and says, hey, we can probably make this one move a little. But to think that somebody's responsible for the whole thing, uh, I don't really think so. Um, Not I, a in single other words, hedge fund, for I, sure. I, 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 so I, I don't think there was an or – I don't think – it was organized. I mean, little scraps of each piece might've been organized a little bit, but this was just a case of the, 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 the tinder was really dry and a spark hit. And then the winds came up and the next thing you know, we had to cut power to California. You know, what I mean? <laughs> it so was one guy running GPT three and TikTok and Twitter. <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah now i'm not i'm not for all i know there's some role of bots and things like that so m maybe there is a certain element of that that i don't know about but but i think that if you focus on that you might miss the bigger pieces to the puzzle i think agreed so so i've been a, a huge fan of the um the end game series that you've been running with grant and um i mean wow i mean just some <laughs> absolutely amazing guests um i'm just wondering if if it's if it's a simple matter or if it, if, if this sort of crystallizes pretty naturally for you, but are there, are there any threads like common threads that, that fall out of all of those interviews that relate very directly to the types of phenomena that we're observing right now? And that seem to be accelerating in, in their magnitude and in their frequency of, you know, emerging, whether it's the, the crypto bubbles. And I mean, it's keep in mind, it's like, it's the end of January, just this month. We've had an explosion in different crypto assets. We've had these amazing short squeezes. We've had a massive rise and in, in drop in, in inflation expectations and, and equity markets and, and rates. Um, and now we've got this this huge short squeeze phenomenon. It's like we, you know, 2020 was like having a, a full market cycle in a year. I feel like we're now starting to compress market cycles into into weekly timeframes, but like, are, are, are we able to sort of pull some major threads from your end game series and apply it to kind of what we saw in 2020, what we're seeing right now, and, and then set the stage for what we might expect over the next, you know, 11 months? Um, I don't, I don't really think so because what the premise the end game is, how does the money printing period end and what, what does that, you know, how do we get to that point? And that's sort of the thing that the, 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 the question that we try to discuss. And um, I don't think the end of it has been so theoretical up to this point. Right. And it's, as Paul Singer said, it's sort of path dependent, what things sort of happen first. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, I believe that if inflation starts to pick up, which I think that it will, I can't prove that it will, but if it starts to pick up, the world gets immensely complicated rather quickly because I think the psychological changes that we're talking about is going to make people more amenable to looking at the situation and, and realizing the Fed is trapped. I mean, the Fed is trapped. 
they cannot stop. I mean, I have been saying this for a long time. I'm, maybe you guys have as well. I knew they could never execute QE or ZERP or NERP. Couldn't do it, you know? And so, but everyone sort of said, maybe you understood. They said, yeah, but so what? You know, they're printing money. It's all okay. Well, once you start generating inflation, it's game over because then they cannot print money to get past the problem. And so if we get to a point and the bond market is starting to back up a bit, people are starting to worry about these outcomes or, or and, and more inflation, or maybe it's as simple as guys say, look, I don't, I don't really need to own this corporate paper at the spread of 50 beeps or whatever it is. Cause I mean, it, you know, a 150 or 170 coupon for seven to 10 years, I know the inflation rate is going to be higher and I'm not going to play that game. So maybe it starts in the corporate sector, but at some point, I believe, unless we don't get any inflation, which I, I don't think is going to be the outcome, especially because of the disruptions. And, and I think the mood is people are willing to, to, to examine the issue a little more clearly now, given, the, given how everyone's head's been so scrambled. The first thing the Fed's going to do when, it, when bonds back up higher than they want, and it's not like there's going to be a sign that says, okay, we're the bond market. We think there's too much inflation. We're backing up. They'll just decide to put on yield curve control, I suspect. And when they do that, if they do it for the reasons I'm suggesting and people start to see that, that'll be like putting gasoline on a fire. And then, then, you, have to, well, if, then you have to see how the market responds, right? Does this impact the dollar? A lot of people think that if there's going to be a problem, it's going to show up in the FX market first. But when all the central banks are doing the same thing, how does one currency really move that far against the other? I mean, the U.S. dollar is the biggest and we have it by size, the, the most debt and the most, the biggest deficit. Um, so maybe it can matter there. But so I think the, 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 the outcome for inflation and we'll probably get an inflationary scare. I know a lot of smart people who think we'll get a scare and that's all it'll be. And that could be true. Um, um, but who knows what kind of a disruption happens if, when that happens. And then, um, if it's more than that, which I think it easily could be, um, then and then all of a sudden the Fed can't print money and the Fed doesn't have your back and you've got these grotesquely inflated stock prices, you know, then all of a sudden the market gets weak and then they can't come into QE or do they anyway? I mean, once they're once everyone realizes they're in a box, it's it's sort of like life life for them and everyone else gets infinitely more complicated. So I think that's the really important thing for for the next six, seven months as to how that plays out. One of the things that's interesting is that we might get a bump up in inflation in the coming months. Uh, and that might be because, you know, the dollars weakening commodities are coming up, but that also the denominator effect, because there was so much deflation in the uh, beginning of 2020. So not to mention the fact that the fed has signaled that they're willing to allow for average inflation as opposed to, to the rolling 12 months. So they're, they're implicitly saying, we're going to let this run. So there might be an opportunity for, for inflation to start manifesting and for people to maybe see this as being actually a positive. So, so do you think that this might be something that for the first six to 12 months is actually perceived as positive and just allows the party to go on a little further? I mean, you, you mentioned it yourself. They do still have yield curve control and, and I, I wouldn't put it past them to, to bring out any, any other kind of uh, creative tools brought to bear to keep the party going? Well, I think stock bulls will definitely try to drink the inflation pretty, if you know what I mean. 
this is just what we needed. Thank God we finally got 2% inflation. Now, listen, does anyone really think that inflation leads to economic growth? It's the other way around. Economic growth can lead to inflation. But this, if you think about the storyline around inflation and deflation, it, it's borderline insane. When the stock bubble burst in 2000, people worried about deflation. That was a code word for depression. In 08, it really looked like, I mean, we, we could have had a depression, but they don't want to say depression. They say deflation. And so now we've got this into the lexicon that we don't like deflation. Well, who doesn't? I mean, who wouldn't want to buy everything they want at 10 or 15 or 20% off? It's, it's, it's absurd. Do we really want the price of things? So what I can't believe is this narrative of 2% inflation is good and maybe two and a half is even better. We need. It's so stupid that if, if, if anyone took a step back and thought about it, they may say, wait, this is insane. And what we've seen this week and a lot in this last year is how fast things can go from, oh, that's not going to happen to, oh, geez, it's happening. So when they're operating from a false premise – to begin with, and they've caused all these disruptions. I'm speaking to the Fed. That who knows? But I, I agree with you. People will try to say it's good and it's exactly what we needed. But I don't think that's going to work. Now, the real question is going to be: Is are we just going to get a little inflation scare bounce? You know, and is it going to get go back to being okay or not? I I I don't know. I have my biases, but we we don't know that. And so we'll just have to see. And, you know, how scary is the inflation bounce, head fake, whatever you want to call it? Um, I really can't say. But but if, if you think about the consequences of that becoming the, the narrative, quote unquote, that, gee, inflation's not going to go back below two. It's going to stay at two. It's going to maybe drift higher. They can't do much about it. And what am I doing owning this treasury, this 10-year treasury at 110? Uh I mean, that just seems like the most obvious train wreck that's going to happen, but I don't know when it's going to happen, uh, but it seems to me like that's going to be the end of this era. That's that's And one of the things I wanted to do was to talk to people about, is that crazy? What do you think? And so I wanted to see who we could talk to. That would, and, you know, there's other topics around that, but, and part of what we focused on, I like to focus on is Japan, where they've, you know, they've experienced you know, more, you know, actual deflation. Uh, and um, they sat silently by while this has happened. And meanwhile, the Bank of Japan owns half the debt and some, you know, 10% of what, 50 or 60% of the ETFs. So in a theoretical aspect, I like to say, well, let's, what happens if the Bank of Japan says to the Ministry of Finance, hey, you take all these JGBs back, you basically tearing them up, but we don't want to disrupt society or anything. And you give us back a perpetual piece of paper at one basis point. They would have effectively wiped out half their debt. They would, they'd still have an, an asset on the books. It wouldn't change anything. But what would life look like the next day? Does the yen trade up or down? Do JGBs trade up or down? Now, I don't know the answer. I, I love to ask this question of people. You guys can tell me what you think. My hunch is that if, if they can do that, then it takes the systemic deflation off the table because they've demonstrated you can always monetize it. In fact, Ben Bernanke said one thing I agree with. We have a printing press. We're not having deflation. So if JGBs trade differently in the wake of that, 
uh, wh- what does that mean here? Anyway, so there's my theoretical question for you for three. Well, actually, we've debated this substantially in-house, right? The, oh, okay. the idea of if you, well, we, we've, we've, we've debated MMT and, and the subtext there, which is fiscal expansion and limited fiscal expansion and monetization. Um, and also what type of portfolio can a person buy that has a reasonable chance of protecting against all of the various types of inflation and or devaluation that we might um, be facing going forward. And, and you know, I, I feel like some combination of these, of, of crypto and gold and, and, and global equities and commodities, et, et cetera, are, are part of the answer. But I mean, I think what you've articulated is that the at the extremes, the, um, the the tree of possibilities is so vast that it is virtually impossible to anticipate the types of um, actions that governments can go to in order to achieve their potentially misguided objectives. Right? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, any of any of your guests offered offered uh, some some advice on that? Or do you personally have any thoughts on, on what that portfolio might look like? Actually, we have a lot of questions um, from the audience on this exact question too. So any, any thoughts on that? I think well, would be very I, I mean, I can extrapolate. We, we did, because of the nature of the guys we've talked to, um, you know, a couple of them, um, like, um, you know, uh, Felix Zuloff runs money, but um, Russell Napier doesn't, for instance. And, and Paul Singer, of course, does. And um, I, I would say that of the people we've spoken to, with the exception of Lacey Hunt, no one thinks that bonds have any value. <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, 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 but obviously Lacey Hunt's in a totally different camp and he's been right for 30 years. So let's not discount that. Um, but I think uh, the, if I was to say th- the way I think most of the guests would have agreed with one, one way for sure to sort of position yourself is to own some precious metals Um, because that ticks a couple of boxes in in that, you know, they have historically been a, uh, a way to protect yourself against um, currency debasement or inflation. And, 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 and the people that like Bitcoin, it has elements of a, of, of limited supply kind of. So, so it, that, that the Bitcoin is in the same sort of thought process. Um, Scarcity trades is basically the thing that you're going for here. It's uh, items that are scarce. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think, and, and then there are der- derivatives of that. I happen to be keen on the, um, the, the mining industry because they've all gotten religion and you can buy really quality mining companies literally at eight to 10 times this year's estimate, they're going to be putting up big growth numbers rate of change. They're increasing the dividends. They have lots of cash flow. So I think that's a perfect invest for me. That's a perfect investment for the environment. I think we're going into um, right now. You can't give them away, you know, because I don't know why they're so unpopular, probably because I like them. But um, um, uh, so I think, Right now, it seems to me that the bid that we've had in precious metals from time to time 
in the last group of years has been because people think, oh, there's going to be more stimulus, fiscal or monetary. And when there's more stimulus, the metals go up. So we're going to buy them. But I don't think there's been much buying because the consequences of the stimulus are negative. So my reason for wanting to own them is because I think the consequences of these policies are liable to be negative. And so I want to capture that. I, I look at it like precious metals or mining companies are calls on the unintended consequences of central bank policies. Um, and that, you're thinking about the end game. You're thinking about currency debasement. You, you're, you're following through on the on the whole end game series and what that would mean for for, for right, capital right, flow. Right, right. But the part I keep getting wrong is this. So I'm set up for the innings. You know, say three through three through eight of the of, of the of that game, and I keep forgetting that the game hasn't been scheduled yet. <laughs> so my trades won't get. They don't get going. I mean. The metals will run on stimulus, but then the, after the stimulus is over, nobody says, no, nah, I don't care. They're not worried about the consequences and I'm worried about the consequences. So I keep getting, I, I keep, I keep having to remind myself that I, that I, that I, I seem to be way too early still. So anyway, but there are, but the kind, you know, the kind of things that would hold their, would, will hold their value. They, you know, but, but not everyone can buy, you know, Monet's or, or contemporary art or, you know, high-end wine. So the, the least common denominator for a lot of people are, you know, I mean, people have been in Bitcoin or, or silver or gold. There's other things. I'm sure they're going to, there'll be certain businesses that will be able to do well. They'll have the right high fixed cost. So they'll have big margins. You know, you won't want to own a grocery store. You know, you don't want to own those. It kind of depends on how strong inflation is going to be as to which kind of businesses would, would do best. And again, uh, I think it's too soon to try to conclude which ones you would necessarily want to own in that environment. As I say, I'm guilty of being prepared for the middle innings and the game hasn't been started yet. So, um, and what but anyway, inflation manifests, right? I mean, do, do you share uh, Lacey Hunt's uh, opinion uh, that until the Fed's liabilities become legal tender, that we're not going to see any real inflation. I mean, that that's that was my point earlier. I mean, we, we yeah. might see a spike in inflation, but then mm -hmm. again, we we might go back into the the secular deflation because of demographics and all that. So so yeah, what would it well, take? First of all, let me say he's been right about this more than me. Okay, in fact, I don't, no one's been more right than he and Van. I think on this topic. I mean, I'm sure there have been others, but they've been quite vocal about it. Um, but I, I. I if if the Fed turns their liabilities into money, it's game over the other way. He he has said that, and um, whether they do that or whether they don't, I mean, they, they kind of had a, a a go at that and didn't amount to much. That was a mainstream lending program. Now, who knows what's going to happen with the new administration? I don't know, but I think there's another factor at work that 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 doesn't get considered because look. Saying there's going to be inflation has been wrong for 30 years. I mean, there's been more than we've talked about, but it hasn't manifested itself in a way that's caused anybody to modify their behavior. Um, and, 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 and this was one of the things that I was really interested in talking to Paul Singer about, and he talked about it, and that is the psychological component. Now, psychology can't, a change in psychology can't create inflation, but if it starts to happen, it can, people can decide it's real and make it worse 
or exacerbate it and turn it into something else. And so a year ago, people found out, oh, I might not be able to buy toilet paper. Oh. And so they went out and bought. And my point is that hadn't happened in forever. And there are going to be supply chain disruptions. We've all found things we couldn't get immediately because of the disruptions caused by the, the virus. So I think people's minds have been open to the possibility that there could be an outcome different than, than the one they've been used to. And given with all the scrambling and these other variables, uh, I don't know that it, that, that, that the, 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 the banks have to turn um, all of that into loans to really have inflation. His data suggests that's true. His actions have proven that theory is correct by how they've done it. But having said that, I'm not 100% convinced that's the only thing that, that matters. I think it could get started before. And if people start to suspect it, they'll start to move the markets before that happens. That was Paul Singer's point that um, people will try to get in front of it. So, uh, but for it to get really bad, I think that probably has to happen. I think you'd have to see the banks probably really help it along. I think I'm not, I'm not hundred percent certain about that, but, um, I know enough smart people to believe that, 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 that I could believe that's a necessary prerequisite. So right now you could position yourself for the inflation scare, and then you got to decide if it's real when it happens. And I, I think if you set yourself up that way and you, you allow for the possibility that it might just be a scare, then you might trade it better. I mean, you, you can't say, you can't say we're not going to get inflation and you can't say it's going to rage. You can say, it looks like we're going to get some. It may rage, it may not. I'll decide when we get into it, but at least I'm going to be live to the possibility that the storyline is going to change about it. And I think that's the only way you can intelligently approach it right now. How does, how does a massive expansion in fiscal policy, like a, a Green New Deal where we're just going to spend and spend and spend, how, how would that change the inflationary outlook? Wouldn't that give you some... Uh, different sources of inflation, if that were to come to pass, I would certainly think so. Um, you know, uh, you know, Lacey Hunt may say no, 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 because or no in this case, yes in that case. But again, I think, I think there's a possibility that people are a little too sanguine about it. it like, I think the storyline is, ah, come on, it's really impossible to get inflation. We can talk about it, but it can't happen. I don't happen to believe that, but I. I'm sympathetic to that argument. Uh, I just, I mean, look, when you, we created all this money and it went into stocks and art and high-end wine and lots of other things because the people that got it, that's where they put it. So if to the extent that the new Congress and MMT puts the hands and money into the hands of people that might spend it differently, you could, you could easily have, more inflation without it being triggered by bank loans. You know, I mean, and, 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 and maybe MMT qualifies for a variation of what Lacey was talking about, about the Fed turning its liabilities into money or uh, for each, you know, maybe it's a variation of that same theme. So I don't know. Um, but I think MMT is the perfect sort of environment to really try to gin some inflation up because, it's there. This new Congress is not going to do anything to try to give money to people that already have a whole lot, right? And so, to the extent that 
that, that they're successful with MMT, it's going to put more hands in the money of everyday citizens and they're liable to push up the price of things. You know, we've already seen the price of homes go crazy uh, in a lot of places. And, and, you know, the pandemic has changed a lot of things. So um, if you drive to some of the infrastructure uh, items, whether they're green or otherwise, you also impact the labor market, right? The, the tightness of the labor market increases, you get wage increases potentially. Do you see that as any kind of outcome? Uh, well, I'm sure the new administration. Policy. Yeah, and, yeah and I mean, MMT. I, 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 I think that could be a consequence, you know, and here's another wild card. Okay, so we're going to we're going to get rid of fracking. Well, we're still right. going to use the oil. So now we're going to have to import oil again and we're going to move it on trains, which is going to be, you know, less efficient, cost more. Maybe the Saudis and the Russians now get back in the driver's seat and they can play ball and energy. But the flip side is there's a lot of good jobs that just went out the door. So maybe some of those jobs can take up the slack over here for this new, the, the, the Green New Deal. Uh, I, I, but I, I, I cannot believe that if we have MMT, as Jim Rogers calls it, more money today, um, I cannot believe that wouldn't result in a very inflationary outcome. I can't give you the exact ankle bone all the way to the neck bone. But given everything else we've just talked about, I, I think it would be very inflationary. Um, although, you know, uh, you'd have to ask somebody like Lacey Hunt about why that might not be the case, because I can't make that argument. On the theme of MMT, because um, this is something we've thought a lot about, I've thought a lot about, and I, I'm just wondering. So fr from a contract with society standpoint, so we've got I was just listening to um, to Sam Harris interview somebody about the social contract and how we can sort of turn the ship around and and um, reinvigorate trust in institutions and in government and and um, and cultivate a sense of national pride and and um, and honor and pride of work, et cetera. And 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 they were talking about fiscal policy as an instrument for that, and the language they were using was pre-MMT language. It was the idea that we're going to tax the uh, the, the so-called productive classes, which are more like the capital classes, to finance um, projects that are good for society, right? And and I was and as they were working through this logic, just as I have, am now understanding the underlying pipes of the economy, and I'm realizing that there is no connection between spending and taxation. And I'm wondering what that implies for the social contract. If we, if we tell, if we tell the wealthy that they're being taxed because we need to remove money from circulation because the demand function at with current money supply is likely to exacerbate inflation or drive inflation above the rate that, is is being targeted by some, you know, is an arbitrary target of certain institutions. Are they going to buy into the social contract in the same way that they bought into the idea of taxation as a social good? And what if they don't? What does that What does that mean in terms of how, what the new social contract is, and what the new purpose of taxation is, and what the new value of of productive work is? Well, that's a really good question. I think that's a question for Mike Green. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got Mike on the on the podcast on Thursday to discuss this. Actually, okay. so yeah, I, I, you know, that's over my pay grade. I I, I don't. <laughs> I I, I kind of think. Look, 
I, I think there's a lot of people who talk a good game, but I think a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give up some of my money. You know, mostly, I think what people want to do is they want to ha- take someone else's money to give to the people that need it. They don't really want to give you some of their money. So I don't think anyone's going to be in favor. I mean, I didn't see Elizabeth Warren cutting a check or Maxine Waters. These ladies are millionaires. You know, if they want to, I mean, they're not leading the charge with their own dough, are they? So, I mean, they're liberal. They're making the cause. They're out championing it. They're not leading by their actions. So, I mean, now there's other lots of wealthy people that give away lots and lots of money. I mean, let's just look at Bill Gates. I mean, you can say what you want about how he interact, about what you think about him, but he's giving all of his money away and he's trying to be smart about it. And there's lots of people like that. So I, I don't really know about your question was a good one, but I, I think you should let Mike answer it. I think it's, well, well, my, my, just to sort of take it to the next step, right? I think there's a situation where the money, um, sorry, the government um, drives a lot of money into the economy via uh, policies that are predicated on MMT, right? This um, this idea that we actually don't need to pay back the debt, the 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 deficit yeah. myth kind of concept. But then there's no the, the mechanism to pull money out of the economy in order to control inflation. Like all of the MMT thesis is that when inflation runs hot, we have a method to pull money out of the economy and that method okay. is taxation right yeah well but that requires the buy-in of those with capital yeah. um, to pay uh, their taxes so yeah I, I okay i i i think i understand this better now look um mmt only works if money's free and money's free right now basically now you know if the government could just issue perps again it would be okay until people scratch their head and said, look, we've issued all these perps, but is it really that easy? Somebody's got to buy them. Who wants to buy a, you know, a, a 1% perp while they, you know, for, the for people who don't know, yeah, the, the you know, a, a perpetual, perpetual, yeah, a perpetual bond. Um, so MMT doesn't work as a, as a construct unless rates are zero. And the only reason they're talking about it is because they've gotten away with all this money printing for so long and they haven't taken the printing press. It would be perfectly perverse from a historical standpoint is at the very moment in time, the bond market was or or bond market bond buyers were ready to start scratching their heads and maybe taking the printing press away from the Fed from a euphemistic way. I like to say it at the time they just decided to come with MMT. So, um, MMT can't, can't, I mean, I've listened to her presentations. She's a very good speaker, but I mean, I think the idea is insane personally. Well, I really, that that could work should have work and that we should pay them for doing that work and (laughs) whether that work is productive or otherwise. Anyway, there's some validity to it. The problem is that it puts the distribution of the, of, of the work of the productivity into a government conduit which I think is never really kind of had a lot of success at allocating capital. Right. Right. I, I didn't mean that when I said it's insane, I don't mean that the idea of trying to do all these good things is insane. The idea that you can um, just, you know, purely monetize them. Print your way to posterity. No kind of, yeah. Mm. And that, I mean, it looks like you can, cause we've gotten away with that. Like Paul Singer said, I mean, for 10 years, the central banks got away with it. They shouldn't have, but they did. And so now we're now, now they think that they can get away with whatever. And again, 
I, I, they're not going. They're not going to get away with MMT. I don't believe. I mean, they might try to do it, but it's going to lead to big trouble. I think. It, it does. Does does it? This kind of extends the whole taxation item is an interesting one when you think about the the decentralized currency arena. And so, how would you, if you're going to decentralize a, a currency, how do you tax that in order to fund the various um, programs that society might want to run? Does everyone volunteer? Um, you know, I, well, I know the point about MMT good. is it it de- it disconnects it it severs the relationship between spending and taxation, right? And so this mm. is this to me is the most remarkable dimension of this whole MMT conversation that people don't seem to be be um, interested in in discussing. But I mean, I think that in the end, the idea is that you're going to control inflation by through taxation. <laughs> and I just think that yeah. by the time well, we get to that point, then no one is going to believe that taxes matter since well, they don't directly fund anything. So really, yeah. you're just you're just you're just taking my wealth for an arbitrary purpose that has no connection to the real economy. So well, I, I, I disagree. Well, a necessary prerequisite would be you'll have to kill all the lobbyists first. Yeah, because right. Because you try to come in with taxes, then what rich people are going to do is do what they did when tax rates were high. When I first got into the investment business, the marginal tax rate was 70%. Nobody paid that because the tax shelter industry was a cottage industry. And you know they were always creating new loopholes. So the people with money that don't want to participate in that are going to have a pretty are, – are, are not going to. And I think when you start think when you start talking about taking north of 50, 60, 70 percent of, of people's marginal income, they get a little upset about that. I mean, I think a lot of uh, there's a lot of people that that somewhere between, you know, 35 and maybe even 55. I'm, I'm not advocating one or the other. People might say, well, that's a fair. And maybe if you have more money, you're willing to say that's fair. But you're not going to get away with with, OK, we printed too much. So now we need to tax the snot out of everybody. That's not going to work because people are going to say, you know, you're going to have all kinds of of people who don't think that's fair. I mean, it's just going to create more trouble. So uh, I think MMT MMT will lead to all kinds of trouble. So I just want to make sure we don't we don't miss this because I was absolutely fascinated and flabbergasted by by this today. I, I saw that um, Janet Yellen came out and said that that they should be introducing. Um, policies that seek to connect equity prices to fundamentals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we used to do before the Fed got involved. I know. I I was any I was Isn't I was that absolutely the discount rate have a have a disc rule number 1 have a discount rate for yeah. discounted cash flow calculations. Yeah, yeah right. Or or you know <laughs> right. just just the Fed not creating um SPVs to buy credit in order yeah. to right. um yeah, to maintain certain certain credit spreads, and I mean, you know, in the next crisis, I'm sure they're they're going to be out, outright buying equities, and so it's you, you now have have the Fed in direct odds with the the Treasury Secretary Secretary who used who's an ex Fed president. Like, I mean, it's just you you can't make this shit up. Which what is the, the opposite what? of what everyone expected, right? They thought Janet Yellen coming in to the Treasury was just going to align the Fed and Treasury and MMT and the fiscal policy that they've been crying for was finally going to come into place, right? So, sorry, Bill, well, you were about to. No, no. I mean, uh, I mean, she can say one thing, but we already know what she's going to do. I mean, I, I don't know why she made that remark, but I mean, 
Uh, and she, she might find herself in a bit of a, 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 a bit of a, a heat if they if these hearings really start get rolling and and uh, they talk about all the checks she got from uh, Goldman and Citadel when when Citadel is kind of right front page news not in a good way I don't know if that'll matter or not but um, uh, look it's look the Fed's been so predictable for so long they're only going to do one thing. She's uh, she's the same bird she was. She's going to do exactly what you think she's going to do. They're going to they're going to advocate printing money and deficit spending, and they're going to monetize it. And whether they call it MMT or not, it's what it is. You're monetizing. They're, look, they're monetizing 120 billion dollars a month. That's and, and they're doing that now, and they're going to do that for the foreseeable future. And if that number moves, it's going to go up, not down, in my opinion. She's pandering to the crowd, most likely. But I kind of wanted yeah. to go to, to go back to this idea. So I, I think we all agree here that we are in this sort of, or well, the Fed is in this sort of Hotel California sort of. You can't leave Zerp, Nerp, whatever it is, QE. It's only going to get worse. What are some of the things that might happen in the coming years that would make you kind of check your priors and say, you know what, this party might keep going for another decade or two? I mean, it, it, there's a chance that if, if we're going to use Japan. As, as sort of an analogy that the, the Fed's balance sheet balloons, they keep buying, they, are, they allow for yield curve control. I mean, we've had this conversation internally. I'd say, I mean, we, all of us here to some degree agree with the thesis of end game that this, this game can't keep going. But do you entertain the thought that it just might? Uh, what, no, not exactly, but what I entertain the thought of is we've never seen this before. We've never seen the central banks do what they're doing. I mean, and, you know, when they tell you they're not, we're not going to raise rates for a couple of years, we're, you know, we're, running, we're, we're monetizing $120 billion a month. We don't know what they're going to response is going to be if the rates rise because the budget deficit gets bigger and the market can't quite finance it all. Um, so um, we're in such uncharted waters. Like, for instance, right now, speculation in America is as intense as it's ever been. It has elements of what happened in 1929. It has elements of what happened in 1969. It has elements of what went on in Tokyo in 1989, has elements of 1999, and there's a little tulip mania thrown in, okay? All of this is happening. And in all of those periods, when the speculation was the most intense was after the central bank had been perversely had been tightening for a while and raising rates. And then that speculation was the end. And I've had people say to me, doesn't, is, doesn't this mean this is the end, this speculation, the Robert? And I, I, my opinion is no, because they're still printing $120 billion a month. We don't know how this crazy – for this to end, in my opinion, the speculation has to get so intense – that even $120 billion of monetization a month on top of zero rates and everything else and the stimmy checks isn't enough. Have we reached that level yet? I don't know. The, 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 the correction that's going on right now is, is a deleveraging one, and I don't know where that'll lead. Um, but we, I can't say because there's no, there's, there's no period in history that we can go by to say, well, this happened then because we've never had this abject monetization with the promise we're not even going to think about thinking about raising rates for a couple of years. 
and we're, and we've already given ourselves an out. We want inflation to run at least two, and then we want to average it. So the first time it prints two, they got they got that they they bought themselves a year long window or something like that. So do I think it can go on for a, a lot longer? Uh, well, a lot if a lot is measured in a year or eighteen months, yes. Do I think they can get past that length of time now, given what I, everything I see? No. Do I think I'm right? I don't know. I, I have a strong opinion, but I, I, I what I, would make I, you change I, your mind if they go into MMT and that doesn't cause inflation? I mean, if we get a spike in inflation, then we go back into this sort of one and a half to maybe two percent at times. Yeah, I, I guess then you'd have yeah. If that starts to play out, then you'd have to say, okay, what's what's at work here? Why is this why is this happening? And how long can this piece of the phenomenon happen? Right. I mean, I think you have to play probabilities. Right now, the highest probability is there's going to be some concern about inflation. Every policy, ask, everything you could ask for other than bank loans growing dramatically is there that would argue that we're going to have more inflation. And we've got a populace that's like all scrambling and they're not sure what they think about anything right now. Everything's up for question. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a really good probability we're going to have some. And if we do, then you've got to decide if it's, it can stick or not. And if it doesn't start to arrive, you'll have to ask yourself why, and you'll have to readjust your thesis. I think that's the best we can do now, because I think that's the highest probability scenario that one can come up with. And then we have to account for the fact that we are in such weird times. Who would have guessed that a short squeeze in a company that's in the mall selling things that you can download online goes crazy to the upside 30 up 30 some fold in 10 days and blows up the leverage head fund in the long short community and takes the market down. I mean, well, if that could happen, who knows what other weird things might happen that, that could happen. I mean, we have been committing crimes against financial sanity for so long <laughs> that who knows what upends the apple cart, you know, how have well, they gotten away me. with, um, not characterizing asset price inflation as inflation for as long as as they have. Like I, I keep scratching my head at this thing. I look around me and everything that matters has gone up massively in price and it nowhere is it included in inflation gauges. Is well, that ever going to change? I wish I knew. I mean, I've been asking that myself that question forever. You know, central banks used to be, worry about asset price inflation, not just CPI inflation. That was one of the things that Greenspan changed, and he got all caught up in productivity. But the calculations they were using in the late '90s were wrong, and it was all it was all around it all centered around hedonics, right? And so the CPI is constructed so that you know everything is adjusted hedonically, which is to say we can we can say I don't care if the price went up fivefold. Guess what? It's five hundred percent better. So the price actually went down. When you can do that, and then there's substitution. Well, I know the price of meat went up, but you're going to switch to chicken, and well, that went up. So you're going to switch to cat food. I mean, there, there, there are all these cheats in the calculation. So I used to say to myself, it's not the statistics. People are going to change their mind. This inflation's never going to change. Sorry, the CPI is never going to change anyone's mind. The people are just going to decide. You know what? Like. I don't know. You should ask ask a, a, a crypto guy. I mean, they're one of the reasons, near as I can tell, that guys are in crypto is they don't trust the Fed. And ask we should ask the crypto people what they think about inflation, because um, you know they've got an opinion about that. And if enough people start to say, I don't, if the people start to say, I don't trust the data, then you're really screwed. 
And but doesn't this and, beg the, the question, sorry to interrupt, but you made a really good point there. Doesn't this beg the question that if they really wanted inflation, wouldn't they just allow CPI to reflect a little bit more no, of the cost? No, no, because the reason they changed all that in 1996, the Boskin Commission, the reason they changed all these calculations is because the government colas and all everything is indexed to the CPI. And so if they keep it at a low number, then the cost of, of all the escalators that are in all the contracts don't Marked go up. up. Check. Right, so they, check. they had a goal. I don't want to say they rigged it, but they had a goal. It's overstated. Let's let's. So that's why they've got you know owner's equivalent rent. They've got all these contortions that they go through so that it won't print. It won't print any real inflation. And you know why people have been so. I think the reason why people have been so uh, calm about this is because the people with the most money have benefited by these. And so why do I worry about inflation when I'm making so much money all the time in, in all this other stuff? So a little inflation doesn't bother me. It's the middle class that's been gutted, you know, and, 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 and is going to feel this the most. And, and, and to some degree, perhaps the millennials as well. Um, and, and, and then, you know, when they start looking at what they're on the hook for, for those of us with gray hair, like me, uh, they can really be pissed. So well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's what they're on the hook for maybe until they're, they're persuaded yeah. that the deficits don't matter. And then the, the, the other question is, you know, you, you can't own a home in a major city because, because right. home prices have been pushed well, up to you, such a multiple you go to work with some, if you, unless you go to work for, uh, one of these anointed, uh, SAS kinds of companies, you know, uh, cause then your stock options. I mean, that's the other thing people say, well, the, one of the favorite arguments of people is, well, the money stays in the financial markets, doesn't leak out. That's crazy. I mean, a lot of these people in all these companies get options. That's what all the buybacks are for. They're not really shrinking the cap. I mean, some do. They're just offsetting the dilution. So there's all kinds of equity money that leaks out into the economy. It doesn't, it's not some, it's not hermetically sealed in the financial markets. It gets out there all the time. So, uh, and via stock options and, and, and all that. And th there's another thing from, that that wasn't supposed to be allowed to happen in the wake of 2000, where where we didn't account for employee expenses properly and stock options. I mean, so all those just I'm going back to another rule that wasn't enforced. Yeah, no, you're so right. But I mean, I just I think it just gets worse for every generation when they don't allow for any normalization of the prices of things that matter. Right. When you've got millennials yeah. and Gen Z's who are now thinking about family formation and they want to upgrade the size of their home to accommodate a larger family. And they, you know, their home costs, you know, multiples of their income and it's multiples of the multiple of the income that it would have cost them 10 years ago or 20 years yeah. ago or 30 years ago. And it's justified because you can borrow enough from the banks at low interest rates in order to be able to afford those homes but all you're doing is trading off, you know, um, high prices for an, an even larger amount of debt on your own balance sheet, which doesn't matter while interest rates are low, but it presumes that interest rates are always going to be low and that the only thing that matters is your interest expense and that the actual, but, but you know, we're, we're taught by modern economists that the balance sheet of a government is not the same as the balance sheet of a household, but people now are beginning to 
balance their books at the household level as though the deficits on their household books don't matter in the same way as the deficits on the on the fed on the government balance sheets don't matter and you know you can't help but think that all of those deficits are going to come home to roost even if the government deficit doesn't come home to roost and i think we all are the verdict is out on that for all of us but the verdict is a lot less ambiguous about household balance sheets right and so I just think it's, you know, you've got all these generations that are going to be far worse off than their parents and they haven't realized well, we, it yet because interest rates are low. We're, we're reconstructing the 1800 family unit. Yeah. The 1800s, grandma and grandpa stayed at home and, and came back to live with the kids. Now the kids are coming to live with grandpa and grandpa. It's perfect. Because grandpa, grandma and grandpa own all the assets and, and all, all the of them. Are, yeah, that's right. Because they just happen to come before. <laughs> So have we have we wrung everything out of Bill that we um, that we? I had a to- ton more questions, but I know Bill has a hard stop, so I'm loath. I mean, if he has a few more minutes, I have one for him. But I, I- go ahead. What's that's one I got. I've got somebody I have to meet that I couldn't change because it's been set up for a long time. So of course, go ahead. Prior, just, one more. I was just going to ask you to play the devil's advocate for the final question. I mean. The, the, the mountain of debt that we that the governments are carrying uh, uh, is is unpayable. Everyone knows that. That's we can't grow ourselves out of it. So you either default or you inflate. So given the corner that the Fed is in, can you blame them for trying to create inflation at this point? I mean, no. I I have had on my masthead on my website for way too long the following slogan. In a social democracy with a fiat currency, all roads lead to inflation. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. It's a great yeah, that did idea. not go unnoticed. The um, I don't know, was it Alexander Hamilton who said that the republic will endure until government realizes that they can bribe the people with the people's money? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Those guys were smart. You know, they yep. really understood human nature. I mean, the more the older I get, the more I read what what they thought of and how many things that things they guarded against. Um, it's pretty remarkable with the, it's really a shame that so many of those guys are in the process of getting canceled because the culture was so different back then, but that's a whole nother can of worms. We don't yeah, want we're not going to open that here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what you're saying is that the monkeys will always vote themselves bananas. Is that? <laughs> that's right. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> This Anyways, great. Bill, this has been absolutely phenomenal. Um, exceeded all expectations. Thank you so much for your time and your and your candor and um, your advice and experience. Well, so thanks a lot. It was really fun. You guys are a great group of guys, and I, I love the the podcast of, that you guys have done that I've seen. So uh, I'm happy to be part of this. And and uh, if you want me to come back sometime to see how wrong I was, I'll, I'll be happy to come back and uh, and uh, admit to my sins. We'll definitely Terrific. We'll hold that. you to it. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Thanks again. Bye now. Thanks a lot. Thanks Bye. a lot. Thanks, Jens. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. 
Thanks again and see you next time.